The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. Hi, welcome to another edition of Health Kick. I'm Tim Borum. Today we're talking about the process of drug development, which uh, is always a slower and more torturous process than uh, most investors appreciate. I've got with me chatting today Dr. Graham Kelly, uh, who knows all about these challenges, having been involved in several ASX listed companies. Uh, Graham's got uh, five decades of experience in the sector. And he's perhaps most known for uh, founding Novagen, which exists today in a different guise as uh, Casia Therapeutics. Graham departed Novagen in 2015 and founded Noxifarm, which is in the game of oncology drug development. Uh, it, it's also ASX listed. Um, he's also Noxifarm's chairman and at the moment acting CEO. And now the latest venture is a non-oncology spin-off of Noxifarm called Nirada Inc., uh, of which Graham is a director. Nirada listed in mid-January this year after raising $8.5 million. Uh, so uh, welcome, Graham. Thank you, Tim. Good to talk to you. Excellent. So before we drill down into what the companies are doing, uh, a broad question. Um, you've just returned from the uh, JP Morgan Biotech Conference in San Francisco, which is one of the industry's leading uh, powwows uh, annually. Well, what did you see there? Well, what, what, what was the mood and uh, what, what, are the, what are the most promising uh, developments? I suppose you're all talking about coronavirus. <laughs> well, it hadn't, it hadn't struck by then, but uh, yeah, I, uh, I do remember when SARS uh, hit the headlines. Uh, I can't even remember the year. What was it, three or four? I was in I was in New York about to fly to Toronto to attend the the biggest cancer conference in the world, and uh, and the border was shut and uh, people in the US couldn't get into Canada. Those in, those already in Canada, where the conference had been called off, couldn't get back home. So it was an incredibly disruptive time, and um, we hope that this coronavirus doesn't go to that extent. No, that's right. Just as well, the uh, the conference wasn't held in uh, China, but. Uh... You got um, you got there and back okay. Oh yeah, but to answer your question, uh, what was what was the the mood? Well, uh, it's an election year in the US, as, as everyone knows, and um, and uh, one of the the key talking points in relation to that is uh, the um, President Trump's efforts to rein in uh, the cost of drugs in the United States or the cost of health care. So that was really dominating uh, the uh, uh, you know the. The message that was uh, at the at the conference, people are now looking uh, at uh, this being an inevitability, and uh, the healthcare costs are just out of control in the U.S. So if you if you want to uh, if you want to be taken seriously as a drug developer, you you really need to be looking at, to bring your drug into the U.S. market, where some somewhere between forty and fifty percent of returns on drug development come out of the United States. And, uh, and cost of cost of, of drugs are going to be a, a very uh, key point. Uh, and uh, so there's a lot of a lot of discussion this year about 
about uh, patients being empowered to um, uh, to be able to get access to to uh, life-saving drugs that uh, don't require uh, mortgaging your house. And uh, I mean, we're we're all aware of some drug drugs we hear about, new drugs coming on the market that cost anything up to a million dollars. And unless the health providers are going to cover that uh, cost in the United States, because they don't really have a system as we do in Australia, the PBS system, the effect on families is, uh, is extraordinary. So uh, being able to deliver new drugs uh, at affordable cost is, a, is, is a, key, a key part of the discussion this year. Yeah, and, and is that actually possible? I mean, in terms of uh, in terms of reducing cost to the consumer, does does that require government action, or um, did you think uh, it actually can be achieved by the private sector, by by the drug developers, while you know covering the costs, uh, the uh, the R and D cost? Well, they don't. I mean, you, I guess most people would be aware that the healthcare system in America is is quite different to the universal system we have here in Australia. Yes, very different. And, uh, so there's, there's no safety net for people. The proportion of citizens in the United States that are on what we would regard as Medicare uh, is very low. I don't know the exact number, but it, it's very low. And uh, the, the vast bulk of, uh, of people uh, have uh, private health care insurance. And that does not involve any co-payment with a Medicare system. You, you, you are reliant upon your insurer willing to cover the cost of a drug. Uh, and in general terms, they only, uh, they only cover the cost of a drug for the indication that uh, that it's that it's been given. So, for example, if the FDA approves a drug for uh, use in, let's say, a lung cancer patient that has a particular genetic marker, then the insurers only need to cover that um, the cost of that drug for people who have got that. They won't they won't cover it for all lung cancer patients or someone who's got breast cancer. So it, it's um, you know it, it's it's a difficult situation a lot of a lot of companies now have uh, 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 subsidized uh, payments for, for, for patients who just can't afford it and uh, so that that's the that's the sort of pushback that's coming from the industry to um, to try and head off some major you know uh, government action that uh, brings brings down the cost of drugs but I think I think the I think that's a bit of a, a King Canute uh, attitude I, I think the, the you know the, the cost the cost of new medications is just going up so high so quickly that uh, governments are just going to be forced into into saying, look, I'm sorry, uh, you really have to um, uh, bring the cost of these drugs down. The One of the, um, uh, with with this up till now, this sort of unbridled, uh, you know, no cap on the cost of drugs, that's driven a lot of uh, pharmaceutical companies to get involved in orphan drug development, orphan disease drug yes. development. Um, Looking at, you know, maybe maybe no more than three or four thousand patients a year requiring a drug. In that situation, you can you can charge whatever you basically whatever you like, particularly if it's a, if it involves children, and particularly if, if you're talking about a life uh, a life threatening condition. The problem, uh, I mean, that you could make a lot more money in much bigger drug areas or areas of need simply by bringing down the cost, you know, to an affordable level, but. That's offset by the fact that you've got such fast numbers. The problem is that that's been the hardest area to uh, to do drug development in things like heart disease or, or stroke. Um, the, uh, the the area the, that, that those fields are littered with the 
uh, you know, graves of companies and drugs that uh, they've tried to do something um, about heart disease and haven't been successful. So the, the uh, and that, that's, that's exactly where NIRATA is. We, we're looking into this big area or areas of very major unmet need. Uh, that's our focus. Uh, we're staying away from the, um, from the more problematic, um, uh, you know, high cost uh, orphan orphan drug area. Yeah, okay. So, Graham, with, with, with Mike Nirada, um, uh, as with Noxifarm, uh, it's all about uh, flavonoid chemistry, which are taken on, on molecules with, with multiple targets of, uh, of action. But uh, to, to tell me more about how it works. Yeah, uh, flavonoids or diphenolics, uh, um, are, it's a chemical class, and they account for one of the largest uh, families of chemicals in our diet. Uh, so humans get large amounts of these compounds and they've been, uh, our bodies have been getting these things for millions of years uh, and, uh, and they're biologically active. I mean, they're, they're biologically active in a plant and, uh, and the fact that many uh, human metabolic systems are, are derived from plant metabolic systems means that these compounds are equally active in humans. So they, 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 have, a, they have a high level of safety. Uh, you know, we wouldn't be we wouldn't be here today if, if they weren't safe. But one of the interesting uh, features, and this has always fascinated me, is that each one of them has multi uh, multi uh, functions. So the vast majority of drugs that humans take have a single uh, single function. They're designed to hit a single target, uh, and uh, that is why most most drugs are not uh, not curative because almost every disease that humans get has multiple parts to it. So if you're just hitting one, one specific part, you can't really expect uh, any, anything to be curative. The only drugs that are really curative are things like uh, antibiotics and, and vaccines. Yes. Uh, everything, else, everything else just treats symptoms, uh, but it doesn't, doesn't treat the underlying disease. That's because, as, a, as I said, every disease has got multiple parts to it. Um, so one of the one of the things that fascinated me about these uh, diphenolic compounds was that they they offer what is called polypharma. That is the ability to uh, the one the one agent can have multiple effects, and if if you're lucky enough that uh, a number of those effects are, are part of the uh, the different aspects of, of a particular disease, then you're more likely to get a, a better outcome. Um, and and that uh, the, the classic example of that is uh, the drug Beyonder, which Noxapharm has in treating cancer. That's that's a that's a polypharma drug. But, so that's that's one uh, one characteristic uh, of them. The other characteristic, which is arguably even more uh, fascinating, is that is that um, with standard drugs that hit a, a specific target, those drugs don't distinguish between a good cell and a bad cell. They just hit everything, and and so hence you get side effects. So uh, how you use uh, standard drugs is it, is it, it comes down to the dose. So you want to use a, a sufficiently high dose that you're hitting bad cells, but not so high that you're also knocking out uh, good cells as well. So it becomes a balancing act. Yes, and that that's that's the situation with every drug humans take. There's always side effects which are the result of what we call off-target activity, which is activity you don't want. With these diphenolics, they don't appear to have that problem. They only work when the, uh, on cells that are misbehaving. 
they don't uh, they they have little effect on cells that are behaving normally so that's what's always fascinated me <clears throat> about these compounds and uh, and that's what Nirata is built on the fact that we can take compounds that are polypharma in their action and uh, and uh, don't do any harm or do very little harm and uh, uh, so that that's the focus of Nirata Okay, and so um, uh, two of the targets I take it uh, with, with Nirada are uh, cholesterol and uh, traumatic brain injury. Yeah, so the the cholesterol one, uh, uh, in fact, that's that's got nothing to do with diphenolic uh, chemistry. That's a that's an outside drug that Nirada acquired. It, it was offered okay. to, it was offered to the company early on, and uh, I uh, and it took me like ten nanoseconds to say yes uh, because it, it it is such a fabulous uh, fabulous drug. So it's um, it's the result of pretty smart Australian science. So I can't take any credit for it. My rather scientists can't take any credit for it. It's come out of um, uh, some uh, uh, an entrepreneur in Melbourne called Dr. Ian Dixon who. Um, who came up with the idea, and then he uh, he, he got three uh, pretty smart chemists in Melbourne to uh, help him, and they, they they put a program together and came up with a with a solution. So to take take it back one step, what what this is all about, uh, I think most people would be aware that um, uh, most of us have got uh, too much bad cholesterol, uh, something called LDL cholesterol. Yes, and the way that the uh, medical profession is treating it at the moment is is to use drugs called statins, and they've been around for about 20 years. Statins, uh, um, up, up till about, well, they, they still are the biggest selling class of drug in the world. They uh, selling, I think last year, they collectively sold about 20 billion US dollars, so roughly 30 billion Australian dollars. At their peak about five years ago, they, uh, I think it was, it was about 60 or 70 billion dollars a year. So, you know, a massive, a massive market. And um, uh, statins work by uh, stopping the, the, the liver from making uh, cholesterol. And uh, when you do that, you'd expect the cholesterol levels to, to plummet, fall down to the floor. But in most people, they don't. Uh, they fall in pretty much everyone, but in about 40 to 50% of people, they don't fall to the level you want them to. And about oh, 10 years ago, uh, scientists discovered why. Uh, as soon as you tell the body to stop making cholesterol, and even though cholesterol has got a bad has got bad press, it's actually an essential ingredient. You know, about twenty five percent of our brain is cholesterol. You need cholesterol on all your nerves throughout your body, um, so it's a, it's a critically important element. Yes, and, and uh, so as soon as the body uh, notices that cholesterol levels are, are falling. It says, hang on, uh, we can't let this happen. So it slams on the brakes, and it does that by producing a protein called PCSK9. And PCSK9 slows down the rate at which your cholesterol falls. So if you make enough PCSK9, it totally offsets the uh, whatever benefit the statins are, uh, are doing. So about, about oh, seven or eight years ago, the pharmaceutical industry said, wow, <laughs> if are we sitting on a, a potential mozza here, um, uh, if, if we're selling $60 billion a year of statins, we should be able to sell $60 billion a year of, of uh, PCSK9 inhibitors. The concept being that at the same time as you use a statin, you also give a drug that blocks 
PCSK9 working. Mm, yes. And, and when you do that, you actually, the, the LDL cholesterol come all the way down. So uh, it's, it's a drug that it was identified a few years ago as, a, as the potential biggest drug market in the world. Uh, and, and so all the big boys uh, some years ago said, okay, we, we now need to make a small molecule. What we want to do is to make it a pill that you take every day along with your statin drug. But they couldn't do it. They, they uh, said it wasn't possible. And, uh, and they went down the monoclonal uh, uh, path and then uh, two monoclonals came to market uh, about four years ago. And, uh, but these are very expensive and they've got to be injected. And so there's been uh, substantial market resistance to their uptake. So instead of the sort of $60 billion a year uh, market base they saw, currently it's about $1 billion a year so because of that market resistance. So what, uh, what Ian Dixon did was to, was to uh, take up where the big boys had left off to see whether he could produce uh, a small molecule that uh, would do the same thing as the antibodies, monoclonal antibodies, but you could take it as a pill. So they made a, a very significant breakthrough. They discovered uh, a way of doing it. We bought it at that point. We've, we've taken it even further. And uh, we've now got to a point where uh, we're getting close to, to knowing what our final drug looks like. And our aim is to bring this eventually into the clinic in combination with a statin. So we see uh, a, a pill, one pill containing two drugs, a statin and our drug that you, you would take uh, with, um, uh, you know, when you're diagnosed with, uh, with high blood cholesterol. And uh, so that, that's the goal. Uh, and... Uh, we uh, we seem to be leading the world in that goal, and um, and it's it's something that's starting to uh, bring us to world attention because yeah. because of this technology. Yeah. Okay. And so 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 just to be clear, and I, I guess investors should appreciate this that that you are preclinical, so um, which means you haven't you haven't done any uh, goals on on humans. Um, no. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the same with the traumatic brain injury uh, program. Uh, yes, yeah, so all all this is preclinical, um, and uh, although the the the, uh, the the traumatic brain uh, uh, program is closer to the to the clinic than the, the cholesterol one, uh, but the uh, um, yeah, so the, the the idea with uh, with the the brain drug it's, it's called a neuroprotectant, uh, a drug that protects the brain from injury. So we're not we're not aiming to prevent injury. What we're aiming to do is to stop. Uh, an injury when it does happen from getting worse. One something that's emerged in recent years is the is a realization that once you damage the brain, that that can be from a stroke or, or you know, severe concussion. Uh, that that area of damage in the brain never repairs. That's gone. Mm -hmm. it, it just gets replaced in scar tissue, and that, that's that. The problem is that um, over the next uh, one to two weeks after that lesion. Uh, you get you get an area of damage spreading out from that uh, from that initial injury, um, and uh, it's a it's a chemical induced problem, and you can end up with an area of, of damage uh, that's about two, three, four times the size of the original injury, and that area that bigger area of brain damage is is what contributes in large part to a lot of the uh, 
you know, a lot of the long-term consequences you end up with, you know, speech problems and memory problems and um, you, know, you lose the you lose this, uh, action of your legs or arms and so forth. And um, so there's been a, there's a big effort to try and stop that, that action. And, uh, and we've discovered one of our diphenolic drugs that we've developed actually very effectively blocks that, that secondary damage. And so uh, we're looking to use that um, to bring that into the clinic, both to treat uh, stroke victims, as well as uh, patients who have, uh, you know, severe brain concussion. Yeah, there's, and, uh, there's not really that much else out there, is there? For, uh... No, there's nothing. There's, there's absolutely nothing. The, the biggest single cost factor facing uh, the U.S. Army is this is this problem of um, uh, what happens after after you get brain injury? Uh, you think of you know, guys uh, inside gun turrets of um, chips or in tanks, that concussive noise damages the brain. Guys in the, in the parachuters who jump out of a plane with a, an 80-pound pack on their back, a high proportion of them then uh, suffer severe concussion when they hit the, hit the ground. Uh, a bomb that goes off near you uh, can uh, cause uh, this concussion in the, in the brain. So the U.S. Department of Defense has got a very, very high priority in doing something about about uh, preventing traumatic brain injury, and uh, we believe we've got uh, something that uh, would interest them. Okay, uh, and just 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 turning quickly to Noxafarm, which uh, of course is uh, is ongoing. The um, the target there is uh, uh, prostate cancer. That's right. Uh, the the drug uh, we, we, well, we've selected prostate cancer in the first instance. So you need to you need to um, do all your trialling and to bring the, the, any any new anti-cancer drug to market for a specific indication. But ultimately, uh, we see this drug being used uh, as a sort of a last line therapy, a safety net therapy in any form of uh, of cancer in breast, ovarian, lung, and so forth. Uh, so it's not it's not designed just for prostate cancer. And uh, we've um, you know we've had some. Uh, some really exciting clinical data uh, being reported in using this drug in men who have got very late stage cancer. So these are men who uh, have now run out of all treatment options. They're, they're undergoing what's called palliative uh, care. Uh, so they're typically getting a little bit of radiotherapy to you know, one tumour that might be causing problems, but that doesn't do anything to the other you know, dozens or hundreds of uh, secondary metastases around the body. So these men have a have a, an average life expectancy of somewhere of about three months, and uh, so we're the la- last lot of data we reported show that uh, about fifty percent of men at that stage are doing well after six months. So the, we've actually been able to stop the uh, the cancer from uh, progressing. Okay, well we, we've run out of time, but it's been uh, great talking uh, to you, Graham. You've uh, obviously got a lot on your plate across both companies. Yeah, it's a busy time, Tim, but it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Okay, thanks again. Okay, bye-bye.